in essence, he's like a more sinister 1999 Jeff Jarrett. Damn. <laughs> every you know. time I have, I, every time we're on the podcast. <laughs> you make some like incredibly thoughtful point and then my brain goes, <laughs> Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> Why does fool got more comics than a motherfucker? Hello, everyone, and welcome to MCMF, the comic book podcast, where I try to get you, dear listener, into the wonderful world of comic books by making my friends read those comic books. My name is Marcus, Mr. Summers, if you're nasty, and this show... This episode of this show, episode 32, is the one-year anniversary of this show. One year ago, I sat on the other side of this room, and I thought to myself, fuck it, I'm going to do it, because I had this idea kicking around in my head for however long, uh, and I was like, well, I'm just going to fucking do it, and I reached out to a lot of my friends to come on this show, starting with our guest on this episode, back. It's the host of the Dragging the Lake podcast. It's our good friend, Jake. Marcus, I am so happy to be here. Um, first of all, thank you for joining me on my podcast. Yes. Um, as you said, Dragging the Lake. I will have to have you back, and I will make you listen to more Grindcore. <laughs> That'll be a great use but, of 40 minutes. Yes, yes. To listen to right. 80, I, 80 deathcore tracks in half the time. See, you joke, but I think the next one I'm going to make you listen to, I think it's like a uh, two-disc uh, compilation. It's like 110 songs, but it's like... 20 minutes? Like Yeah, it's like 45 minutes. <laughs> or 40, Yeah, something like that. Brian anyway, Cole, the funniest genre. By far. Um, but today, I'm I'm subjecting you to something else that's very unpleasant <laughs> yes and i threatened you with this <laughs> you threatened me with this almost a year ago on the episode we did uh, was the punisher episode that is right that one was rough too but oh, i feel like was... this is rougher i feel like the reason you suggested it on that episode is like this was rough you know it's rougher <laughs> That sounds like something I would have done, said, yeah. <laughs> um, so we are reading From Hell by Alan Moore. Uh, this is the second Alan Moore thing that we've uh, that I've read on this podcast. Uh, shockingly, the first was not Watchmen, which I uh, inevitably am going to do on this show. At some point, I am going to read Watchmen. I don't know, you man. shouldn't do Watchmen. You should just do the comic book that is within the Watchmen. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the pirate story that he put into his already existing <laughs> comic book story. Because Alan Moore is a prick. <laughs> top top ten comic writer all time. Weird bastard. <laughs> I actually have his um, his porno book that had like Alice in Wonderland in it, but they're like. <laughs> She and like um, uh, Sleeping Beauty are like oh doing the nasty God. in France. Like I actually have a copy of 
the that fuck? should put me on a list or something. Yes. But... <laughs> <laughs> what the? I'm admitting to things on a podcast. This is being recorded. You have to scrap the audio. Make me sound like a libertarian. Oh <laughs> uh, well, you see, the age of consent. I, no. I pantomime picking my nose there. Um, you did indeed. I'm shutting that shit down. This is an audio podcast. Um, I am saying that libertarians eat boogers. Uh, they do. <laughs> and also have proximity to pedophiles. Oh, it's so close. It's like... <laughs> I'm just saying proximity. I'm not... See, that's not slanderous because I just said proximity. <laughs> All right? I can no, say that. It's simply the implication. <laughs> It's the implication of an implication. All right? That's one step removed. I'm fine. Legally, I'm not liable. You know, because of the implication. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Alan Moore, weird fucker. And Alan Moore, like Chris Claremont, like a lot of people who are great at shit, uh, is like a little fucked up. And uh, friend of the show, Caleb... And I talked about this a while ago, and he said, to be great at something, you've got to be a little fucking weird. Uh, all the all-time greats, fucking, fucking freaks. LeBron James is maybe the greatest basketball player of, uh, that I've ever seen, like, in real time. LeBron is a fucking weird guy. Absolutely. <laughs> LeBron pretends to read books. And I'm not saying that LeBron cannot read. I'm saying that you've never seen a picture of LeBron James reading a book halfway through it. He's always at the beginning of the book. And he's that... doing it while he's walking. Yes! You know what I mean? Like, he's wearing a suit. <laughs> also, he he's wore reading... those terrible outfits in 2010. Yeah, he's reading, like, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, but he's, like, on page three. Yeah! Like... You know what? You know what sounds like a great thing to do as I'm walking in. Just let's crack open a nice little read here, just for the walk-in. Michael I need Jordan, to kill five minutes. Michael Jordan, all-time great basketball player, terrible basketball executive, compulsive gambler, possibly a serial killer. Um, Where's the largest pants? Where's the largest jeans you've ever seen? His eyes are yellower every time I see him. <laughs> he makes up like grievances to give himself fuel to play better that's <laughs> you should be on a list for that he's a weird dude but he's also incredible and alan moore similarly incredible incredible writer incredible author an incredible weird. basketball player but... <laughs> listen i bet that alan moore's got a crazy clean jumper it would be, like, I, it feels like the kind of thing that would be just weird enough to be true. <laughs> like, if I had to, like, pick, like, comic book writers, comic book creators, like, for a game, for a pickup game, yeah, fuck it, give me Alan Moore at the three. Let's see what happens. <laughs> it's, it's like the time when I realized that Bernie Sanders is, like, six foot two and still <laughs> drain free throws at, like, 80. Yeah, it's like, wait a minute. It's like, of yeah. course, this yeah, is too weird to me. <laughs> Oh, that's another weird, weird human being. <laughs> Interesting <Exactly>. dude. <laughs> just, just doing whatever. <laughs> um, but Alan Moore, weird guy, and just weird enough to write 
From Hell, which is about Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and he's just like 1991. He's like, man, fuck Warner Brothers. Fuck DC Comics. I'm going to write a fucking Jack the Ripper. I'm going to take nine years <laughs> to write a speculative story that I have been researching probably for like 20 years, like going through letters and like logs from police reports from the 1800s and all sorts of weird stuff and reading about the history of the Freemasons, all the things he did. And he said, you know what? Why on earth do I care about this Superman bullshit anymore? <laughs> He's like, I wrote the greatest Superman story that'll ever be written. Fuck all this. I am going to write the Jack the Ripper bullshit. Exactly. Again, <laughs> over the course of nine years. The Steve Blackman of comic books. You know Steve Blackman is a fucking bounty hunter now? <laughs> no, you know what? This is perfect. I feel like this episode is just going to be us discovering more weird things that probably shouldn't be true, but is. Because uh, that's just sort of the, the story of Alan Moore in the first place. Yes. Alan Moore, like, worshipped, like, a snake god or some shit at some point? Was it a snake? Was it a spider? Some weird animal deity. He has many theories about magic. Um, and he is himself a wizard, and I mean that literally. Yes. Um, if you don't know what Alan Moore looks like, pull up your phone and Google a photo of Alan Moore. Yeah, so, like, so Chapo Trap House has had on Slavo Zizek and, like, Adam Curtis and a bunch of other kind of weird guys, and I think Alan Moore is still somehow the strangest person that has ever been on the Chapo Trap House podcast, which says a lot. Alan Moore literally looks like fucking Merlin. <laughs> he does. He does. He looks like Gandalf the Grey, and he did probably as many hallucinogens as Gandalf the Grey. Oh, man. Oh, man, this is a dude who just loves fucking going into the woods and getting higher than fucking giraffe ass. But really. No exaggeration. <laughs> if you look up, like, if you Google Alan Moore, the top stories that come up are Alan Moore admits he almost launched a Joker attack in real life. Alan Moore admits he basically became a magician on a dare. <laughs> I don't think I didn't look, but I don't think that's a joke. I, I think uh, you actually looked that up. And that's I swear to God, I am reading I that. You. That's on my screen right now. I believe it. <laughs> Sight unseen. He's the weirdest dude that's ever lived. He is, and you know, and God bless us all that we live at the same time as Alan Moore. I appreciate the fact that you just sent me a screen cap in the chat <laughs> trying to prove it you didn't have to prove it <laughs> alan like that, moore I, looks like a have fucking he looks like a red dead redemption character like <laughs> um so from hell uh similarly to a lot of alan moore's other shit uh was adapted into a movie he's like the writer that everyone adapts their shit like his shit into like Watchmen, and he has never liked it, and he never likes it. There is one, and we talked about this on the episode that we did, me and Alex. There is one adaptation of an Alan Moore project 
that he likes, that he like appreciates, and it is the episode of Justice League Unlimited uh, called "For the Man Who Has Everything." That's okay. like if the it's going to be anything, yeah. it'll be JLU. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they worked. W- it's like the one thing that he like, like the one DC thing he wanted, like he let them put his name on because he like they just did it like shot for shot and made it fit for the canon of the show but they kept the spirit of it they did it they understood what it was because that's the thing with Alan Moore's stuff is it's always adapted by people who don't understand one him as a a person and two uh, the thing as it is they don't understand what it is like Zack Snyder's Watchmen is like one of the earliest comic book movies that people like really praised and really liked. Zack Snyder fundamentally does not understand Watchmen. Absolutely not. And no. you can tell because he goes out of his way to make Rorschach cool. Rorschach is cool. Um, everybody knows how to fight, which in the comics it's made abundantly clear that they do not know how to fight. They have no hands. All right, Zack Snyder put these dudes in slow mo, throwing hands, also having sex in slow mo, which is kind of. I feel like Alan Moore doesn't see sex as like. I don't think that he thinks that's a good thing. <laughs> I think he thinks it's a thing that people do. Yeah, it's like, like you he, certainly do it, but he knows in the abstract that people do. But like, I don't. He, think he himself has it. done it, but I don't think he cares that much about it. Yeah, you know what? Let's not go too deep into his sexual pathologies because, again, I do own a graphic novel that is this thick, ladies and gentlemen. If you're listening, good lord, it's like this—he's holding his hand up, and it's like the size of like a bullet. It is a coffee table book. I shit you not. That's bigger than I want you to understand how big Jake just opened his hands up. I own sitting on my shelf in my room uh, the. Uh, the books that Shea Serrano wrote about hip-hop, and those books stacked on top of each other are still smaller. Than... <laughs> it's about as long as From Hell. As From Hell, yeah! From Hell, which is approximately like 600 pages. We're reading one right. chapter from it, uh, so it's a tight, like, 36 pages. Um, it's a dense 36 pages. <laughs> a lot. I, I looked up, I said t- like at the bottom of each page it says what page you're on. And I looked, I said how am I only on page 13? So you're the f- on the opposite of Grindcore. So <laughs> yeah! This is, uh, this is to give prog you, rock. <laughs> I'm here to give you time distortion in one direction or the other. Uh, <laughs> if you, again, if you haven't listened, I plug it like every other episode. Jake's, ep- uh, Jake's podcast, Dragging the Lake. It's a podcast about music. Uh, one, the episode that I'm on, we went through a lot of shit, and you, I think I specifically said that I looked up halfway through the Grindcore album, <laughs> through the, the Pig Destroyer album, and I looked up and six songs had gone by. I said, what the fuck? <laughs> what <Yeah>. the fuck? Because <laughs> all these songs are like 52 what? seconds long. <laughs> yeah, time dilation is my specialty. A minute nine. <laughs> Like every song is, uh, here's your here's your requisite Scott Pilgrim reference. It's been a while since I've made one. Uh, it's a, it's like Crash and the Boys. <laughs> it's all just this next song is called 
I am so, I'm so sad. sad. So very, very sad. One power chord later. <laughs> it's not a race, guys. This next song is for that guy who keeps yelling at us from the balcony. It's called We Hate You. Please die. The funniest part about that is that in the movie they cut the song that is We Hate You, Please Die. Uh, like, they play a different song there. I think that... Another some... failed adaptation. Yeah. I mean, look, that's the, that's the closest you'll get to a live-action adaptation of a, of a comic book that's, like, faithful in that way. But the song... Like, it's a deleted scene. They just cut it for time. Uh, the song they sing is... They go, We hate you! We hate you! We hate you! Die! <laughs> that's a bomb. That's I mean, fucking yeah. awesome! Um... But this is going to be chapter four of From Hell. What doth the Lord require of thee? And Indeed, what doth? What doth the Lord require of thee? And Jake, if you want to set the scene here for what, where we open. Yes. So a little backstory here. So the story of From Hell, as Marcus just said, is the story of Jack the Ripper. And as everybody knows, uh, that case was never truly resolved. Um, the, you know, Jack the Ripper himself was never fully identified, convicted, tried, anything. They couldn't find the guy. Um, now, his supposition, uh, through his various um, years of research, was that he was actually identified, but the case was sort of squashed by the royal family uh, and he says that it was squashed by the royal family because he believes that the royal family themselves were implicated so that's not revealing anything because it, that is at the beginning of the book um, more kind of opens with that which I think is pretty gutsy because this is you know 572 pages this was written over the course of nine years as I said um, so to start off with that is pretty impressive. But the story is that um, a prince marries uh, in secret a common shopkeeper, and they have a child. And a group of prostitutes becomes aware of this. They are friends with the woman uh, and try to use that as blackmail, right? Now, of course, the royal family puts the kibosh in the marriage and, like, hides everything away and, you know, tries to bury it under the rug. But these prostitutes threaten to go um, public with this information if they are not compensated. So, um, Dr. Gull, G-U-L-L, -L, is called upon by the Queen to uh, take care of this quietly. Now, Dr. Gull, in Moore's opinion, um, was in fact the killer. Now, I'm not entirely sure if Dr. Gull was a real person. Um, I do believe that he believes that somebody like this did yes, it. Yes, somebody who would be in this position. Right, and he is a doctor, he's the royal doctor, um, and he's got some interesting beliefs, some interesting ideas. Um, and at the beginning of chapter four, we see the queen uh, call for Dr. Gull. Now, her servant who is said to go find him says, ma'am, is there not another way? Is there is there any other way we could resolve this? Implying that Gull had been known to do this kind of thing. Like, his right. reputation was as the cleaner. You know? Yes. And the queen I'm responds... I'm leaving space 
I was leaving space for you to make a Kenny Omega reference, but you didn't. Do that, so <laughs> Cleaner. I got this. I got this. <laughs> I was going to make a Cedric the Entertainer reference, which would have gotten nobody. <laughs> that would have no, been no, no. 100% a joke for me. No, I think I think Kota Ibushi's boyfriend is more prominent. <laughs> I, I would love for the retcon to simply be, like, that everyone talks about Kenny Omega, like, uh... <laughs> like, he's, like, um... There's an Olympian. I can't remember her name, but she's a fucking Olympian. She won medals in the Olympics. But when the Chicago Tribune wrote an article about her winning fucking medals, they just mentioned, like, that her husband, like, in the headline, it's like, wife of Bears player. It's like, what? Yeah, Kota Ibushi's ex just won the AEW world title. (laughs) That's how I think of him, but I'm a fucking wrestling weeb Ugh. the only good wrestling is in japan and they're all fat all the good wrestlers are fat uh, you know what? you're right about that second part i that was not a joke oh yeah i completely agree. the best wrestlers are just like some dude uh <laughs> that's why okay, eddie okay, kingston okay. rules because eddie kingston Correct. is some guy and that's why walter sucks now because they <laughs> walter got <laughs> Walter got skinny and began to suck. I'm going on as many tangents as Alan Moore goes on. That's um, the show. Damn right. A year so, in, I've just embraced it. You should. Um, <laughs> so anyway, chapter four begins with that. The queen is saying that she wants Dr. Gull brought in because she believes that this is the best way to take care of it. Quiet assassinations, basically. Um, now, Dr. Gull is... He is an upper-class doctor right so like he is directly tied to the royal family so he doesn't really have connections to the underworld or really even the lower classes at all so he has to find somebody who can be his literal guide into the world of these prostitutes now he is a guide in a geographical sense he knows london like the back of his hand um but he needs nutley what a name uh to drive his coach and show him where these prostitutes are. So the pretty much the entirety of chapter four, apart from the initial sequence of the, the queen asking for Dr. Gull, uh, is just Gull leading Nutley through uh, London and trying to teach him some history and some of his philosophy. So not a lot actually happens, like not a lot of plot happens in this chapter. But I chose this chapter because you can pretty much get the full Alan Moore experience through yes. this uh, this chapter because it's all about philosophy and it's all about history and it's all about how magic, darkness, light, hell, and heaven are all encapsulated in an urban setting because that's yeah. something that he keeps coming back to all the time. Um, so yeah, I wanted to do this. Also, it's just really, really uncomfortable to read. And yes. if you're going to put out something on Halloween, this is a great one. Yeah, I mean, we started last year on Halloween with the Judas contract, which is uncomfortable in a different sense, because Slade is also a libertarian. Dark. <laughs> really dark. So, like, libertarian Deathstroke? Yeah, the libertarian soldier for hire versus the socialist comic book writer who is also a hermit and a wizard. And also somewhere in here is 
legendary artist Eddie Campbell. I'm not as familiar with Campbell's work, honestly. Uh, it's mostly this... this, but like he like he's fucking great at this. He's like the perfect partner for perfect. Uh, for more here. Perfect. I mean, it's all um, it's all just like scratchy pencil, mm -hmm. you know, just very very thin lines. A lot of sh like the shading looks kind of like scribbled in. Yes. You know, it doesn't. It, there's nothing clean about this, and it helps add to this really like uncomfortable atmosphere that you're getting here. Uh, Very much. Where so. like it's not in a lot of places structured like a typical uh, comic book. Uh, yeah. And like when we meet Netley, Netley has like a fucking face on him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Netley looks like he fucking boxes in an alley after he's done driving Dr. Gull around. I mean, that's probably true. Yeah. And he seems pretty gross because Dr. Gull repeatedly says that he doesn't want to touch Netley and he doesn't want Netley to touch anything that he touches. Yes. At one point he offers a grape and he's like, actually, I don't want you to touch the grapes because that's gross. <laughs> Netley looks like he sweats a lot. And also, this so is Victorian English. This is Victorian England. Nobody is, like, fucking bathing regularly. No. This whole book... You can, you can smell, smell it. this book. You can. <laughs> like, this is a very smelly book. Very slimy. Um, Correct. Because, yeah, when we see Netley uh, pull up to, to Dr. Gull, he holds his hand out. He says, uh, Bang on time, your lordship. Hang on all down and open the door. That won't be necessary. It would better suit my purposes to ride up top beside you. Come, give me your hand. He says, Well, as you wish, Sir William, though it ain't very comfortable. You see, normally I just put luggage up here. Ha ha ha! Then I shall be your luggage. Though I have to add, the ha 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 is written out like that. It is, yeah. Um, and it's uncomfortable. The whole thing is uncomfortable. It starts off uncomfortable. Um, there's a, you know, it's very rare that Campbell actually gives, like, somebody's full face in mm -hmm. this book. Really, the whole book. Um, you very rarely get a full, full shot of anybody's full face. A lot of it's obscured, or it's just sort of partially drawn in in some places. But this is one of those rare moments where you can actually see some detail on Gull's face. Yeah. Um, which to me adds... You don't even see the full face. You just see half of his face, but it's very detailed, which is extremely rare. Yeah, the uh, shadow on, like, the left side of his face is, like, so harsh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's very clear, like, oh, this dude is up to some shit. Yeah, uh, it's... And, and he doesn't hide that. That's That's one thing that I like about this a lot, is that... You know, like I said, the reveal is right at the beginning. There's nothing hidden yes. in this. There's a there's only dramatic irony in the fact that you know what's going on as the reader, but nobody else does. Right. Um, but that also adds a layer of do you really know what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Because like when we come to the conclusion of this of this chapter, I said, "Hey, what the fuck did I just read?" Because it's like 
it's like, okay, this dude is clearly, like, up to no good. And then it's like, oh, oh, it gets worse. It, yeah, it simply I, will I get highly, worse. I highly recommend reading um, the rest of From Hell because it keeps getting worse is kind of just, like, the book. <laughs> yeah, that's the vibe of this whole thing. Uh, also, if you are here for shitty British accents, you're going to get them. Uh, <laughs> I've had it. Uh, and so they ride off, and uh, Netley asks it, asks Dr. Gull about some work. He says, pardon me for asking, Sir William, but when you sent your message, you said how oh, you might have... <laughs> I, need, I need to mention that... Moore went the extra mile and made sure that you would read this correctly by making sure everything that Netley says has, like, the right, like, you know, letters dropped from it written. Because it's, pardon me for asking, apostrophe. You sent your message, you said as as ow, with the H dropped. You might, you might have... Some work you could put my way. Indeed. Indeed I did. And grand work it shall be. Too grand, I fear, to be encompassed by a coachman's cul-de-sac philosophies. Yeah, so that's that's another thing, is that Alan Moore is really preoccupied with class. Yes. Uh, as, as a British person, um, his class is something that's better understood in Europe than it is in America. Um, but it is a fixation of his and really all of his work, especially his stuff that's less fantastical. Um, also, he is indeed a socialist, and I think that is that is important to note yeah. uh, for this story um, as sort of the predation of working people, um, working people being preyed upon by the upper classes is sort of what this is about in the first place. That's like the underlying theme, uh, and honestly, the theme of the chapter is that oh, there yeah. are ruling classes that are preying on uh, other classes and other ways of social organization. Um, and I think that, again, that's something that's important in all of his work. Um, but you can see that shot through in multiple different ways uh, in From Hell and in multiple different ways in this chapter alone. Yeah. Um, also... Uh just to go wildly in the other direction here uh, I just realized that Dr. Gull looks like Sir Topham Hatt <laughs> just like the fat controller from uh, from Thomas the Tank Engine but if he was just like very clearly up to no good like if he was just an evil bastard he would look like this yeah he, he is an evil looking bastard um and yeah, ominous. So that's that's another thing that that we get through here. Um, now I'll, I'll be honest with you, Marcus. I'm gonna have a really hard time talking about this in a linear manner mm-hmm. uh, because this is not. Again, there's really no plot to this yeah. chapter. The only plot is, hey, Doctor Gull, I need you to take care of some things. Wink, wink. Doctor Gull finds Netley walks him through, talks about all sorts of creepy, like, Jordan Peterson Freemason stuff, uh, and then at the end, Netley realizes what he's in for, and... Netley, you woke moralist! Yes. Yeah. He's complaining about the woke moralists. Actually, he... 
You know what? He kind of He is. does. He does do this. Like, this sounds like, like I'm doing a bit, which I am. I'm always doing a bit. This show is just elaborate bits. But that's true. he is just like talking about how like women are evil and we need to destroy how we need to wrest control of the world from women <laughs> that is actually entirely true um and so you know i guess i guess i can go ahead and start with this in that you know in my notes i do say there's a jordan peterson view here um, because there is, it's just that Jordan Peterson is kind of dumb and doesn't really know exactly what he's talking about. Doesn't that dude just um, exclusively eat meat? He did, and then he got into the hospital, of course, because uh, he, he went on the carnivore diet, so it was just meat, salt, and water. Hmm. Um, red meat, specifically. Um, and then... Can't see how that would turn out well for you. Especially when you're, like, a very sickly-looking Canadian man. Um, and then his daughter got him put into a mental institution because he got uh, hooked on painkillers. And now he's back in the hospital, and his daughter put him back in the hospital. And her boyfriend is, like, a mega-chad communist from, like, Eastern Europe. Um, <laughs> that rules. <laughs> I kind of keep up with this story for the reason that I just explained, because that it's fucking hilarious. Anyway... <laughs> Anyway, this dude uh, should be in Yugoslavia somewhere. Basically, um, it's just Luka Doncic. So <laughs> <laughs> you got me. I was trying to be serious. Um, so anyway, the one of the the primary um, theses of Jordan Peterson, because um, I have to bring him up because he is a tie to this, um, is that there are essential components of masculinity and femininity, right? Mm -hmm. That masculinity is hallmarked by order, uh, law, rationality, reason, uh, and femininity is hallmarked by chaos, creativity, uh, emotion, um, that sort of thing, right? And so this dichotomy is not novel, right. this is not new, this is a very old concept, um, and the fact that it is an old concept is what uh, Moore is trying to communicate here through Gull, right? Now, I don't think that... I, I don't know how much of this Alan Moore actually believes in, mm -hmm. but I do think that he believes that people believe it. Right. And he I think believes that, that he, whoever Dr. Gull would have been believed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and he specifically name drops the Freemasons uh, and other sort of secret societies uh, as people who believe in that and see themselves on sort of a front line uh, in that battle. And I, I do want to say, and I want to get your opinion on this, Marcus, that I don't think that Gull is a misogynist in the sense that he just hates women as people. But he I hates do women think he conceptually. He, yeah, exactly. He hates women in a conceptual sense of what they represent. The idea of a woman. <laughs> yeah. Ew, yuck. Well, yeah. No, I mean, really, though, I think that's kind of what he's he's getting to here, and I'm glad that you saw the same thing there. Mm -hmm. um, so, if you, you want to take us through a little bit more, um, you can kind of handle some of the where are we, what are we doing kind of right. things, because trust me, I'm not going to be able to do that. I just, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but right. you, you need to structure me here. Yeah. So, I mean, right away, he tells he tells Nedley what's what. He's like, there are certain wretched women, Nedley, who threaten the crown. This threat must be removed. Do you understand? 
I do, sir. Done and away with, like. No, sir. Not done and away with, for that is common murder, only fit for common footpads. I spoke of grand work, Nedley. Grand work. A great work must have many sides from which we may consider it. Think of the classic legends with their layer of significance. Diana, for example. Is she an ancient fairy tale? A symbol meaning dreams and womanhood, a deified princess from long ago. A myth, a symbol, history. Or take in this city, in itself, a great work, you'll agree. A thing of many levels and complexities. How well do you know London, Netley? Like the back of my hand, sir. <laughs> As grubby, certainly, but London's more besides. It's too... It he had too... to throw in there that he's dirty. Yes, you, d you dirty, smelly fuck. <laughs> you make me sick, Netley. I need you, Netley. <laughs> it, too, is simple and history and myth. And he's giving him, like, driving directions as they go. And then he asks, and this is where I really, like, kind of, like, sat up. I was like, where is this going? Because he asks, tell me, Netley. He says, we'll, he says, we must consider our great work in all its aspects. We'll begin with women. Tell me, Netley, do you like them? He says, women can't get enough, sir. No, not do you desire them, Netley. Do you like them as a gender, the way they think, the things they say? Could you, for instance, tolerate a, wor a world where females ruled, with men bound to their whims and governed by their scorn? This is, um, I had a note, which is, damn, this is all, this is how Andrew Tate fans think this guy sounds. Yes. Um, yes. So, I'm glad that you say that, actually. One, it's timely, because I'm an MMA person, and... Yes. Apparently, fighters just are glomming on to Andrew Tate because it's the head anytime, trauma. I think it's the head trauma and the thought that like, oh, this is a person who people say is bad. Well, what if he's good? Actually, it's like because you we're all get hit, you get hit in the head for a living. Don't talk yeah. to me about what's good and bad. Maybe your opinions on things that don't involve face punching are not really relevant. And this anyway. is not to say that combat sports are not a valuable. You know, they've existed for hundreds of thousands of years. People like violence. Uh, us among them. <laughs> I sit up and I watch fucking Ali highlights before I go to bed. Because goddamn, that's cool as fuck. However, so concussions do a lot to the brain. Uh, getting knocked out is super bad for you. Yes. Um, but yeah, like Andrew Tate. <laughs> uh, and like Jordan Peterson, um, there is a there is a scare tactic he's doing here, right? Right. So he thinks that Netley is too stupid to understand really the core of what he's trying to say here. Um, so he's trying to put it in terms like, "Hey, what if women ruled us?" Right? Mm -hmm. Because again, he's not talking about having a queen because because they have he's one. answering and he's answering. To he the works queen. for her. Yes. So, the literal woman being in charge is not the issue. But women, conceptually, that's the Conceptually. This, this whole thing, to tie this to, to your show, this whole thing read like a protest the hero song. Huh. Uh, like, specifically, the ones we talked about on, on the episode that you and I did. Yeah. Where, um, like Kezia, that album is like conceptually about like women's rights. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and like this, you, this is me having a light bulb going. Off <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing head. it in your face. Like yeah. this is, but also like this is. He asks this in a way where it's like in a way this is a conversation people are having in a modern sense that a lot of men like you know desire women but don't like them like they like having sex with women but don't like like women as people they might like individual women right they probably have a mother a sister a grandmother cousin whatever a friend but they don't have they might have a woman in charge of them right but the, the issue is that that woman is in his view masculine that's the issue uh and netley or uh dr gull says offer up the then offer up a prayer to these black tenements these soot encrusted walls twas here that woman's kind's last hopes and dreams were put to sword Women had power once, back in the caves. Life hinged on childbirth's mystery, and we served mother goddesses, not father gods. Twas thus for several million years. Then men rebelled, perhaps a few at first, a small conspiracy, who by some act of social magic, politics of force, cast woman down that man might rule. Time passed, and kingdoms passed from father unto son. The matriarchy was forgotten, save for the... I keep... I know this word, but, like, the, the tribe is talking about. Isini, yes. Isini? I think that's it. Isini, I think. But they were, uh, a, you know, a tribe uh, in ancient Britain. Uh, yeah, indigenous to Britain. Right. Uh, and they're saved by, saved by them there in Colchester, allowed some independence by the occupying Roman troops. Yet Rome forbid that Bodicea, that the Isini's queen, should pass her crown to daughters and not sons. When she complained, they raped her and her daughters in contempt. A grave mistake. She gathered the Iceni, howling to the howling to her mother goddesses for vengeance, and burned London to the ground, its gutters heaped with steaming heads. She left a stripe of ash, a cold black vein in London's geological strata, token of one woman's wrath. Mark it, Netley. Mark it well and fear it. So, one, I'm glad that you read all of that. Because it's damn good writing. It's incredible. This shit is legitimately like some of the best writing I've ever read. Yeah, it it really stands out. Um, It's why Moore is one of my... I have to say he's one of my favorite authors and not just comic book authors. Right, because he writes this shit like it's books. Yeah, because to him it is. Yes, it's books with a visual component to help you follow Yeah, I think the reason why he moved away from writing comics is because he noticed like they're not giving me the license to actually write literature anymore. Um, I gotta write the funny pages. Yeah, I gotta write the funny pages. I gotta write the dudes in tights and stuff like that. But anyway, um, you know, this part is really the beginning of him getting to the the point. (laughs) He's getting to his point. Um, And this monologue reminds me a lot of the movie There Will Be Blood. Have you ever seen that? I've seen kind of like isolated things from it. I think I might have like caught it here and there, but like, but never in time. One of my, 
It's one of my favorite movies. It's definitely, like, it's on my letterboxed favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is because I have a fixation, and I promise this is relevant and not actually a tangent. <laughs> I have a fixation on points in history where you see, over a very short amount of time, a rupture in the social order, right? Um, you see this sort of break, this interregnum between social and economic orders uh, where things are being sorted out, so to speak. There's a contest of where the world's going to go after this moment, right? So I was uh, saying earlier that I've been playing a lot of Warriors Orochi, (laughs) and I play Dynasty Warriors and Samurai Warriors and all those goofy games, but the reason why I play those games and why I find them so interesting is because they're actually about points in history that are like this. <laughs> yeah, Sengoku do you want to learn about the, you know, the yellow turbans uh, and also cut up a bunch of dudes? Yeah, yeah, I do want to do that. It, it was, honest to God, when I was like nine years old, that was what got me into history. Yes. <laughs> um, sitting here learning that, about fucking Lubu and I'm like, this dude kicks ass. Yes, and that's how I got into this specific kind of history, where right. you see these massive revolutions, right? So Sengoku Japan, the Warring States period of China in the 3rd century, um, this era, actually, that, that he's writing about, this is the, you know, right around the Industrial Revolution that he's writing about this, right? Victorian England. Uh, And in There Will Be Blood, it's the early 20th century in the gold rush, not the gold rush, the oil rush um, in America, right? All of these times were where you saw an old order explode, and there was a contest of where things were versus where they're going. Now, in this case, what he's saying is that in the past, women and femininity specifically was the rule. Emotion, chaos, um, creativity. That was what we saw as the most valuable ruling ideals, right? And his theory is that it is his duty to support an order of masculinity, the rule of law, rationality, um, you know, things that are, are considered manly and things that began to be taking precedent over everything else shortly before this time period, um, mainly with the advent of philosophical liberalism and capitalism, right? Um, Things that he felt at this point in time were under threat, right? And he explicitly says this much later on, that he thinks that these values that we view as masculine, these values that I adhere to, I have to defend them. And this whole thing is him trying to convince Netley that this is their grand work, is to force femininity back into subservience. And in the smaller sense, his tiny little skirmish is to take care of these prostitutes. And it is important to note that they are prostitutes, Yes, as he says later. This is, um, I don't know how to put this, in essence... He's like a more sinister 1999 Jeff Jarrett. Damn. <laughs> every you know. time I have, I, every time we're on the podcast. <laughs> you make some like incredibly thoughtful point and then my brain goes, <laughs> Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> but you're right. But um, yeah, like that's like, like for a point <laughs> of reference. 
1999, the Jeff Jarrett character suddenly, kind of out of nowhere, goes from being like this corny country singer act that was outdated by the standards of the Attitude Era, as it's called. If you don't know what the Attitude Era is, I have to go on these diatribes and I have to explain them. Uh, there's First a period. Of all, how the fuck are you listening to this podcast? The podcast you don't know the ad- Listen, you don't we know gained that. a lot of followers because of TikTok, and a lot of people had like been listening to this podcast. I don't know what everybody knows. Uh, you know, you got to treat everything like it's somebody's first issue. The Attitude Era was a period in wrestling. Broadly, people. Some people say it starts in 1997. I'm of the opinion it starts in 1998. Um, you know, from WrestleMania 14 to WrestleMania 17, 1998 to 2001, in which wrestling kind of caught up with the times, where in the 90s there is this cultural shift uh, where people have really started to reject, you know, everything as it was in the 80s. It's where you see uh, things like John Paul Valley becoming Batman, and he's this fucking edgy robot Batman. Uh, and Superman gets the long hair. Like, it's we're trying to be cool. The Attitude Era was that for wrestling. Jeff Jarrett. There is no, there are no more heroes, there are only anti-heroes. There are only shades of gray. The biggest hero of the Attitude Era is Stone Cold Steve Austin, a man who routinely whooped his boss's ass, which is very cool. A very cool That's thing a hero. to do. Uh, but also once told Bret Hart, he was like called Bret Hart like a fucking crybaby because Bret was upset that people didn't like him anymore. He's like, I didn't, I didn't do shit different. You guys liked me a year ago. You people liked me. I was a hero. And in Canada, they understand a hero when they see one and not you dumb Americans. And Stone Cold was like, shut up. What? <laughs> What? You piece of trash. Uh, <laughs> he said, they call you the headman. You put an ass in front of headman, you'll get my opinion of Bret Hart. Uh, and he was the coolest guy on American television. Jeff Jarrett, prior to this point in time, had for years on WWF television been this corny country singer. Like, he would come down to the ring with a song that he sang. Where he's like, ain't I great? Uh, he wore these dumb tassels, his big fucking cowboy hat with his initials on it. Uh, he would spell his name out every time he came out. He was J-E-F-F-J-A-R-R-E-T. And then suddenly, he said, fuck this. And just became like, just every, if you were a kid in 1990, in the 90s or early 2000s, you knew a dude whose dad was Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> like, especially, like, if you grew up, like, where we grew up. I, you know, I grew up in Illinois. You grew up in Kentucky. There's always somebody that's just that guy. <laughs> and Jeff Jarrett just one day was like, women should be in the kitchen, barefoot and pregnant. Uh, and he was like, ordering the cat around not the cat's like a feline like there's a woman named the cat her name was Stacy Carter it's a whole thing he like had this blood feud with China the wrestler because 
she was like, well, I'm, you know, a woman who is strong. I don't want to do these things. It's a, it's a very feminist character. And people, like, who were there, people who watched it, have this affection for her, in large part because of this, because she was standing up to a man. But Jeff Jarrett is this... He, like, becomes less himself and more a caricature of, like, man. Uh, where he is just like, I'll hit a woman, you piece of trash. Uh, he hits an 80-year-old woman in the head with a guitar. Which, to be fair, everybody, like, beat the shit out of this 80-year-old woman on TV for some reason in 1999. Uh, Dr. Gold would absolutely hit an old woman in the Dr. Gold would beat the dog shit out of Mae Young. Absolutely. And May said May would tell him, lay it in there, you sissy. <laughs> I can handle it. Because Mae Young fucking ruled. Only but, facts. But when I say that Dr. Gold became Jeff Jarrett, I am saying... Dr. Gold is Jeff Jarrett. I am saying... That A, again, as a bit, it's funny. But two, because they both are this, like, laser-guided caricature of misogyny. Yes. Uh, In an abstract level, honestly. Yes. They are, they are, they are the personifications of the abstraction. Yes. Um, yes. And they both want you to believe what they believe so that they can use that for their own game. In Jeff Jarrett's case, it was the Intercontinental Championship. In Dr. Gull's case, it's getting away with killing a bunch of prostitutes at the order of the Queen. Correct. One slightly more impactful than the other, but not many things are as impactful as the Intercontinental title. <laughs> uh, in 99? You damn right! Yeah. <laughs> uh... And he, Dr. Gull, this is where the thing with the grapes thing, grapes happens. Because <laughs> he and he and with, uh, Netley are uh, riding down the street. And he says, uh, uh, Do you begin to grasp how truly great a work London is? A veritable te textbook we may dra draw upon in formulating great works of our own. Will penetrate its metaphors, lay bare its structure, and co thus come at... <laughs> We're gonna penetrate and thus come. As I said it, I was like, this is fucked up. Well, no, we were going to penetrate it, lay it bare, and thus come at last upon its meaning. That is intentional. That's on purpose, yeah. It is 100% intentional <laughs> that he is saying it that way. Because he is saying that to do so, to engage in the scientific method, as we understand it at this point in history, is a masculine endeavor. He is saying rationality, as we understand rationality in this era, is masculine. Right. Uh, he says, as great as befits great work, we'll read it carefully and with respect. And Nettley says, uh, with respect, sir, I can't read. Oh, Nettley, 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 what are we to do with you? And he's saying it like, you. Poor downtrodden soul. But he's not going to teach Nedley how to fucking read. He doesn't feel bad that Nedley can't read. He's saying this to demean Nedley. Because he has to remind Nedley, we are not equals. You and I are not the same. We do not... 
you are the student and I am the teacher. You are the poor common man who drives me around and I am the, the high class man who teaches you the things that you, the things that are beyond your station. Again, right. he's your Joe Rogan, your Andrew Tate, your Jeff Jarrett. Man, I don't know if Jeff Jarrett deserves that. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't. Double Damn. J kept wrestling interesting at a point in time where it was not. And I'm not talking about the Attitude Era. I'm talking about TNA. <laughs> we don't get there without the fucking King of the Mountain. He also started calling himself the King of the Mountain, which is an incredible fucking nickname to give yourself. <laughs> That is a very Dr. Gull thing to do. And then he named a match after the nickname he gave himself. Because he knows how to work. Because he knows he knows how to market. He knows how to work. We gotta he work the marks, brother. We gotta get him into the impact zone. He once told Stone Cold Steve. Have <laughs> you heard the story about when he and Stone Cold were in Memphis and uh, Jerry Jarrett was paying everybody? And uh, Stone Cold looks at his check, and Jeff Jarrett is giving everyone their checks for some fucking reason. And Austin is staring at his check, and he's just like, in his mind, like, damn, they're paying me like shit. And Jarrett looks at him and says, it's not going to get any bigger by staring at it. (laughs) What a fucker. Man knew business. Uh, he also knew to make everybody who could get over enough to beat him in TNA, he knew to make them uh, one of his sidekicks instead of an opponent for him. <laughs> he did it every time. He A said, I, you're in my world. I'll drop the belt to Sting. But you, Monty Brown, I don't think so. Justice for the alpha male. That's the only alpha male I want to hear about. Is fucking Monty Brown. Damn straight. Uh, I I only want to hear alpha male if I'm also going to hear about the pounce. Good lord. He does say to Netley here, too. He says, I take it street signs aren't beyond your literary grasp. Again, you are dumb, and I am smart. And he's splendid. By chance, our lesson for today requires of you no further scholarship. The greater part of London's story is not written words. It is instead a literature stone of place names and associations where faint echoes answer back off the distant ruined walls of bloody history. Which, again, great fucking words. Like, just... And what he's getting at here is something that, you know, is is in all of Alan Moore's work. Which is Mm -hmm. that the space has power and right. that power is put into a space right there's a psychic if not emotional if not primal energy in a place that's what he says by magic that's what he means by ghosts spirits hauntings um you know he's written explicitly about hauntings and what he's saying is that you know there's a thinness in space right mm-hmm. there's a thinness in certain spaces where the now and the then and the will be are all bleeding together right right? and that's sort of what he's saying here but he's also talking about interpretation right that the way that we interpret our space is guided by the period that we're in uh and it's guided by the powers that be 
And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a, a little bit of this because it, it, it actually is kind of directly into that, right? So he talks about William Blake, right? Uh, let's see here. Alexander Gilchrist, Blake's biographer, by Blake he means William Blake, um, he suggests tis but comparatively recently that seeing visions would call into doubt a person's sanity. Why Roman military logs describe divine encounters quite routinely, less remarkable than horseshoes lost or quartermaster's lists. Our brains were different then. The gods seemed real. Right? And so it comes again to that same point where he says the conscious, ignorant once of its dark twin, mistook its dreams and inspirations for celestial visions, muses whispering, called madmen, saints, or else demoniacs. Our lunatics, excuse me, our lunatics were prophets once, and had a prophet's power. Never forget that, Metley. Blake was a throwback from beyond the age of reason, from a time of magic, thinking, when the gods yet walked with men. By faith, he was a druid, such as praised the sun from Parliament Hill, yet Blake abhorred the sun. Let me pause there. The sun is considered to be the masculine. The moon is considered to be the feminine. Yeah, he does mention here, he says, um, we kind of gloss past it, but he puts that um, that moon-sun dichotomy duology there in further, like, explanation where he says all human brains your own included Nedley, have two sides the left is reason logic science or apollonian skills apollonian of apollo the god of the sun uh, the right is magic art and madness dionysian attributes the mind's unconscious hemisphere whose symbol is the moon thank you and picking up he says talking to calvin pointing to the sky blake's cried that is the greek apollo he is satan it is ironic that his bones rest here, beneath the sun god's obelisk. So, what he's saying is that in the age of femininity, in the age of women, that he is so against, that he's trying to push back against now, um, those visions, those uh, visions that were granted from something ethereal, something that isn't material, um, those were prophets. They were revered. People who could see that way, um, were people who were taken very seriously because that was a serious endeavor whereas now in the masculine you're a lunatic <laughs> right you know when you hear things and you see visions that's not taken seriously because that's not material and that's not reasonable or rational worth mentioning so. as well which plays into this moon sun thing that the word lunatic one of its roots is lunar of the moon and it's it's like a very clever thing that he peppers in there. Yes. Just yes. so it just enough that you catch it, just enough that it sticks. And he goes on to mention that the so steeples and obelisks come up a lot, right? And he shows a lot of points in uh, London's geography where there are high-reaching steeples, uh, and even Netley points out that it looks like his John Thomas. Uh, <laughs> he says no. <laughs> He's like, yes, actually, I know that's the crude way to put it, Natalie, but you're exactly right. That is phallic, and it is reaching toward what? The, the sun. sun. He's saying that that's the point of these steeples and these obelisks, that <laughs> that is man's ascendancy, reaching for the sun. My favorite part of the thing where the Netley says the style on my John Thomas more like is that that does not that sentence is not punctuated. 
<laughs> like it's just Netly, which gives a vibe that Netly like says it like under his breath. Again, really good lettering. <laughs> Styled on my John Thomas, more like. Which also John Thomas, very funny like way to say cock and balls. <laughs> we have to do something about the British. <laughs> it's like somebody pointed out. Randy Johnson, the baseball player, Hall of Fame pitcher, uh, he his murder of birds, murder of birds, uh, also now NFL photographer. What a king! What a guy! <laughs> to the fucking baseball Hall of Fame. His name is Randy Johnson, which in England his name is Horny Penis, uh, and it's doubled down in that his nickname was the Big Unit. You goddamn right. <laughs> Which Dr. Is, Gold would love this. Thing. Dr. Gold would fucking love Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson was like, well, was I'm not saying like he's fucking dead. Randy Johnson's like seven feet tall. Strong as shit. Reaching toward the sun. Reaching towards the sun. A, a testament to Apollo. His name is Randy Johnson. Uh, yeah, he says the obelisk is phallic for the for the sun's a symbol of the male principle of man's ascendancy. It also symbolizes man's left brain, a rational Apollonian side. And yet, each sunset casts its unforgiving shadow across the grave of England's greatest holy fool as it shows the shadow of the obelisk falling over William Blake's uh, headstone. Some good-ass shit right there. That's That's, good writing. (laughs) Yes. And this is... The thing about Alan Moore and, like, the thing that makes him, like a great author and like the perfect person for comic books is that he lets he scripts these things in such a way that the dialogue drives the drives the story forward but the visual language of comics as a medium is like ever present and is utilized in a very like in a way that only comics can and it's really like an advertisement for what comics are and what they can be uh, if you let them be like to a much lesser degree one of my favorite individual like pages of a comic like this is another example of the things you are able to do with with comics as a visual medium there's an issue of the Robin Solo book which me, uh, me and Jesse reviewed a couple weeks ago, or about a month ago now. But there's a uh, issue of that really early on, where Tim is in a situation where he needs to get away from somebody, but he has to do it in such a way that the people around him don't realize that he's Robin. So it the book does not like. There's not a big arrow pointing at it. It's just something you notice following the visual language of comics and following everything as it progresses. So he moves to the side, rolls over a coffee table, which knocks a magazine onto the floor in the path that this person is following him. And this happens over the course of, like, three panels. And the thing with the magazine, you don't... Again, it doesn't, like, spell it out for you. It just happens, and you just notice, like, oh, this is a really cool way to use it, and it makes sense for this character to do that. And there are so many fun things that you can do 
with comics in this way. And Alan Moore, uh, and with whoever he's working with, like he, it helps that he always like worked with people who were like perfect, like like you know co-workers on it with him. Um, like you know, again, um, uh, why am I forgetting his name? It, uh, the the artist on this, Eddie... Uh, Eddie Campbell. Eddie Campbell. Like, what's his fucking last name? It's not McGinnis. Who am I thinking of that's Ed McGinnis? Uh, but, like, you know, him, Eddie Campbell, Alan Davis, who he worked on, um, on, like, Captain Britain, and, you know, with... He... He works with these artists who, like, understand completely how to make his thoughts like present in the present on the page and utilize the visual medium like when he had to have melinda gebby illustrate um snow white's vagina i'm not sorry for that the police are on their way <laughs> uh so so continue with uh structuring here because they I, I do have some notes but there are a lot of things that um i have to save my voice for dear listener i must clarify i have bronchitis uh i this is my flu game okay <laughs> i have been laying down and doing nothing for two weeks this is me powering through in the name of podcasting Ugh. Breathing is labored. He's got the meat sweats, but he's here. All true. Uh, and so they ride down the street some more. And he says, down to down Old Street to St. Luke's. It's architect, one Nicholas Hawksmore, which fucking awesome name. <laughs> That's all time great name. Nicholas Hawksmore. Uh, That's a porn was, name. <laughs> Nicholas Coxmore. Come on. <laughs> That's like the, <laughs> the basketball player, Luke Longley. That's <laughs> like if, if the NBA didn't work out for him, he had a promising career in adult film. Just off name alone. You put that on the box, <laughs> sell that at the, at the back of the video store. You uh, put it on the box. Indeed. <laughs> Uh, when he says Nicholas Hawksmore was commissioned in good faith to raise Christian churches in the city following the fo- following the fire of 1666 fun coincidence there uh, but Hawksmore was no Christian and his pagan works perpetuate the occult teachings of the, of the ancient Di- uh, Dionysiac architects his greatest influence St. Luke's is up ahead the church itself is unremarkable but it, ah, the steeple. Look at ah, the steeple. Look at Hawksmore steeple. You're you're playing it up just a little bit because it is he is very. I'm much only insane. doing. I'm only a little bit. Like it's yeah. all caps steeple. <laughs> Look at his dick. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I on this fucking show? Because <laughs> you love me, man. 
I do. Uh, so, and so <laughs> Netley looks up and he says, Why, sir, I never noticed. <laughs> How did you not notice? Netley? Like, I get it. Netley's supposed to be like a dumb, poor person. But like, the dumbest, poorest person in America would look at this thing and say, that looks like a penis. <laughs> Standards of, of poor people intelligence have been raised considerably <laughs> since you know, Great point, but people have been drawing dicks on things since like 400 BC. I do believe that's Gull's point. <laughs> it is. It is. He says, um... Hawksmoor maintained his strange designs based upon the purest forms of Christianity, which, to his mind, were those of the 4th century AD. He must have known 4th century Britain had its pagan side, even with Emperor Julian officially renouncing Christianity. His sponsors, obviously unwitting of this fact, bowed to his greater wisdom, let him build his steeples as he pleased. He built an obelisk, another altar to the sun and masculinity, and reason with its cold erection stabbing at the sun, at the sky, merely a part of the concealed design that Hawksmoor <laughs> sought to stamp across this city's face. <laughs> Just <laughs> slap it with it. Just <laughs> mushroom stamping. <laughs> Look at how I fuck the sky, England. Yes, London has its obelisks, so too have Paris, Washington, New York. Freemasons in those cities through this century have had a hand in situating obelisks at certain points, aware of their significance. Freemasons, sir? Why, begging your pardon, Sir William, I urge yourself, I heard as you yourself were of that order. Oh, the world of masonry has many denizens and uh, many fields of influence. Take the square, for example. Why, with so many London poets uncommemorated, should we name streetway, streets after an insignificant marquee? Here's why. He, he was a leading mason, Marquis of Northampton, site of Hawksmoor's Easton Neston Hall, characteristically aligned with local churches. Sir, I've heard the, uh, the way a man might best advance himself is it that he joins the masons, if my work pleases your lordship, would you have a word on my behalf, like? Ha ha! Why, Netley, I can offer you more than that. Promise you'll put your heart and soul into this task, and I, guarantee, I will guarantee your name will swiftly pass into Masonic history. Sir, Sir William, this will change my life. You can't imagine, sir. Oh, but I can, dear Netley. Most assuredly, I can. Everything he does, his face is shrouded further in shadow. Yeah, and, and I wanted to get to, to a specific moment here where you do see that and you do see a few things fleshed out with mm -hmm. the sun and the moon, right? Shortly after this, he shows them different obelisks, etc., etc. Um, it is worth noting that he is calling out very specific points in London that are indeed real, and Moore himself made a point to do this. Yes, this is um, Alan Moore going, hey man, you know what's fucking cool? Ancient history. And he's taking you literally on a tour. On a tour, yes. And telling you, at this place, this thing happened 2,000 years ago. Yes. And so he points out another obelisk, and I'm not going to go into all of it, but 
He said, beneath it, curious tokens were entombed. A map, daguerreotypes of our epoch's most lovely women, and a razor. What does this imply, Netley? What does this imply? With imply in all caps. Um, now, that, that panel is really important to me. Um, it is on page 20 uh, in chapter 4. And you can see Gull's face the top half in shadow with one bulging eye and the other in shadow. He looks fucking deranged. He does. And Netley looks like he's going to vomit. <laughs> Netley looks more and more uncomfortable the longer this goes. Indeed. Um, and so that's important because that's going to be a consistent theme. But anyway, yeah. um, he continues. He's talking about this this obelisk and he says, he who'd wield it would be the best of, would the best of tailors be to do the to do the work. Increase the sun god's sovereignty. Call down the sun itself. Touch earth with Atum's purifying light that all might know his majesty. These speculations have a common thread. The war twixt the sun and moon, wherein all history has been conscripted. Tis the war of sun and moon that man steals woman's power, that left brain conquers right, that reason chains insanity. At Bedlam yonder, I've heard men proclaim they ruled the eagles vow they'd war upon the stars if I'd but give them claret. Claret meaning blood, by the way. Um, Lunatics are soldiers of the moon alongside poets, artists, sorcerers, all warring on the stars which are but distant suns. So, again, there's this this theme that not only are um, you know, all, not only is all of history um, ascribed to the sort of conflict theory, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Conflict theory being a pretty broad thing, like Marxism is a conflict theory. Right. Um, but instead of, you know, the conflict between classes, it's the conflict between masculinity and femininity, right? And in his view, and he even goes into this, all gods throughout history are exemplifiers of the same things, right? So, Jesus Christ, Atum, Baal, Beelzebub, whatever, Apollo, he name drops Apollo multiple times, Dionysus these are all two different sides of that war, right and these, this is actually I think Alan Moore in a way writing himself into the story yes. um, one of the rare moments where I think he, he and Gull actually kind of believe the same thing, which is that the gods are one the gods are only refractions of what are within humans yes and uh, they are they exemplify components of our existence they're metaphors right um it's uh that like all of these stories through history through different cultures through different uh belief systems they all share these common threads because they're all in a way this internal this expression of the internal belief that is through humans um and uh on page hit it um page 22 were you i was just about to say page 22 yeah yeah page 22 and 23 we start to see uh further descent into who gull is under the surface yeah he says Uh, uh Quite a recent. lot of close-ups. A lot of close-ups, <laughs> yes. too. His face, 
he looks shell-shocked this whole page. And Netley wants to get off of the fucking carriage. Netley wants to go home. We see very little of Netley's face uh, for quite a while, actually. His face is put in shadow. He's leaning down. You're seeing the top of his hat more than you're seeing his face, whereas over time you were seeing Gull's face become more and more prominent. You are seeing more of who he is and more of the madness. Uh, And he says, quite recently, I had a heart stroke. Did I tell you that? It caused aphasia. A fluxion of the brain's right side that yields hallucinations. Netley, I saw God. I had knelt before him, and he told me what to do. And Gull, the doctor, says, Why, to converse with gods is madness. And Gull, the man, replies, Then who'd be sane? Yeah, I love that. That's, that is one of my favorite moments in this entire... Uh, and his chapter. eyes are wide bulging yeah he bulging he looks he looks haunted mm-hmm. yeah he is i mean that and that that is something that you know we're only reading the one chapter um mm-hmm. but you know it, when you read the rest of it and I, I really really do implore people to read read all of this it's quite the endeavor like you know we said it's almost 600 pages but it is worth your time yeah um but it it becomes more and more clear that he is a haunted man that there is a part of him that you wonder how much of it is insanity, how much of it is him becoming a holy fool. Right? Yes. Uh, there's a sort of irony to that, really. That he believes, he, he believes in his heart of hearts that he is doing some great work put upon him by a higher power. Like he is becoming more of a fanatic, but in a quiet way, where he can reveal this to someone like Nedley, who, as far as his world is concerned, does not matter. But he can't reveal um, this to the queen. Right. Now, chapter twenty or page twenty-three um, is another one that I want to point out. I I don't have as many more that I want to point out from here on because there's you know a lot, and I have very specific points that I want to get to. Um, but there's this one on uh, page twenty-three where he sort of sums up quite a bit of it in in one little go. Uh, he says, think of it, Netley, Dionysic architects. What contradiction with the god of instinct and unreason, thus evoked by architects, the most sober Apollonian of men? Yet they knew the unconscious was the inspiration whence their towers of reason sprang. Thus, harnessing its power symbolically was their sublime accomplishment. Their symbol was the dreaming moon, enclosed by seven stars that represented arithmetic, music, astronomy, rhetoric, grammar, logic, and geometry, the pillars of Masonic thought. That symbol also signifies the female power within humanity, unfettered by its ring of stars, that are but distant suns and therefore masculine. Symbols have power, Nedley, power enough to turn even a stomach such as yours, or to deliver half of this planet's population into slavery. Powerful stuff but also him just sort of like summing up a lot of what we've been talking about into one short monologue. Right. Uh, This man looks aggressively British. This is... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, it helps that Campbell and Moore are both English themselves, but like, on the last panel of page 23, this is like a dude they know. 
Eddie Campbell is like looking at a person when he drew this. Uh, and they just um, go. He continues to go on, and he. I I did like like the way this page was written. He says, "Symbols direct our thoughts and deeds. Rouse buried shapes beneath our waking minds. All magic is symbolic, from the corn doll to the vow to the." I realized this was be voodoo. I think so. Uh, but I guess how they would have said it, the vow dao right. Why consciousness itself is not but symbols, metaphors which build upon themselves and thus extend their metaphysical domain. With symbols did male warlocks conquer women, first destroying or discrediting the goddesses that stood for women's power. The mother goddess, Tiamat, was made devil first and then lowly chimera. Goddesses were replaced by gods. Next came child sacrifice, killing that first most awesome female symbol, which is motherhood, and their magic and their power. This hill near the half-moon lane is named for Hearn, an antlered man whose image may date from the Iron Age. Hearn uh, usurped Diana's role as leader of the Lunar Hunt, a male pretender to her female throne. Below the river, so Ephraim flowed. Yeah, yeah. Basically... What he's saying is that throughout history, the way that these things change is you take from one side of it uh, something sacred and you make it vulgar, you make it profane, uh, and then you have the power. Right, You've you take the their, their power and bastardize it, and now it's yours, which is like a tenet of like these regimes that do these things. You take something that means something and pervert it. And now, the people who had it don't want it anymore. It's yours now because you made it bad. And in some things, it's like you take a symbol and you do this. In other things, it's you take like a cultural landmark and or something that someone creates. You appropriate it to use a modern term and now the people who used it who created it loved it in some cases are either willingly giving it up because now it means a thing that it didn't mean when they made it or are forced away from it because now it's your thing not their thing and you now get to keep that gate. Uh, you have like the terms for what that means now. Right. Um, like a, a thing happened, you know, again, to tie it to music. That's what happened to rock music. You know, it was this... Uh, it was a thing created by black people. It was a black form of expression that... Um, that then became whitewashed both in the literal sense and the figurative where it you suddenly look up and it's like all this music that was made by Chuck Berry Rosetta Thorpe uh, you know uh, Little Richard now you look up in a space of 10 years and the biggest acts in the world making the same music and getting way more of a platform for it, it's now become a, a white expression because now there's Elvis, the Beatles, 
uh, Cream. Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis. Rest in piss to him. Jerry Lee Lewis Damn died right. today. And fuck that motherfucker. Um, Damn straight. Um, if you don't mind, I actually found this really interesting that, you know, there's quite a bit here that I feel like, I feel like if we read a lot of this in the intervening pages, we're just kind of going to be repeating a lot of what we've already sort of said. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did want to jump from page 25 to page 31, um, where he says, measured against the span of goddesses, our male rebellions lately won. Our new regime of rationality unfledged, precarious. Our grand symbolic magic chaining womankind thus must often be reinforced, carved deeper yet into history's flesh, enduring till the earth's demise, when this world and its sisters shall at last be swallowed by a father's son grown red and bloated as a leech. And now I'm skipping to page 31. You see, man's pattern of control grows faint amidst the tumult of these times. The lunatic and female power of the moon must stay constrained or contained within its ring of male sons, those seven stars of rationality. The ancient symbols must be reinforced, lest we should fall before the scythe-wheeled scythe chariots of some new Boadicea, perish on Diana's altars, reinstated and impatient for her reckoning. How shall these symbols burn once more with clarity? The spells are lost, but I've conversed with gods, and have divined their art. For magic is but human will lent focus by a methodology including ritual, prayer, and sacrifice. Pause. That's that's just Alan Moore talking again. This is just Alan Moore, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, anyway, resuming. In druid churches, mortar is mixed with blood, lending the stones vitality to do their work through all their architects' feet dust. Stop here and let us watch the sun set over spital fields. Okay. So yeah, that... I thought it was interesting, though, that there's a lot in the intervening pages there. Again, I feel like I can skip because it would just be saying the same things we've already said. But he really is picking up the same conversation over the course of, like, six pages. Right. Um, and, again, you're getting to a points that Gull has been trying to make the whole time, but you're also getting to things that are mixed with Alan Moore's own beliefs on magic and the importance of symbols and the importance of ritual. Mm -hmm. um, now, was there something you wanted to carry on there with? Because there, there is something else that is tied to that that I want to get to. But you can, you can take it away for a minute if you like. I just wanted to say again, just like to point it out, Netley is going to throw up. He he looks so he looks physically ill. He makes it all the way to page thirty-seven. Yeah, and he says like. Uh, you know, you realize that I only shared these private thoughts in recognition of your lack of cognizance. And he says, why, thank you, sir. I can't say what that means to me. He says, ha, 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 of course you can't. That's precisely why I trust you. I can only tell you these things, Netley, because I think you a fool. You're an idiot. And you cannot explain to anybody what I'm talking about and it'll just make you sound fucking stupid. So I can say these things to you because it doesn't matter. Another bit of irony there, isn't there? That he knows that somebody like Netley, or even himself, saying this would be considered to be a fool, a lunatic, all of the things that are of the moon. Um, right. And it is, it, it is the trappings of the moon that allow camouflage uh, so that people don't take them seriously. Right. 
I don't know. I thought that was an interesting bit of iron. Yeah. Uh, they finally pull into uh, just to this cathedral to, to St. Paul and uh, this is on uh, this page is where he makes that point that you uh, made before he says Apollo, Lud, Belenus, Atum, Christ or Ball, all one God and talks about St. Paul and they come into this beautiful could, like rendering of this cathedral. Uh, Which page are you at? This is this is page thirty four of the. And granted, I'm reading this from the master edition, so I think the pages might be slightly different. So I think it might be there page thirty five for you. Uh, no, yeah, you, that that is correct. Thirty four is the one where you see the front of the cathedral, but there is one thing that I want to throw in there from page twenty nine. Yeah. Um, because here's another example of a criminal, a malcontent, um, placing themselves at a point in history where they can shift things in the favor of one order or another. So he is Jack the Ripper. Right. Um, you know, Daniel Plainview and There Will Be Blood is Daniel Plainview. Um, Jeff Jarrett is Jeff Jarrett. Uh, their, their malcontents and their criminal acts... <laughs> <laughs> uh, shift power in one it direction or another. To put Jeff Jarrett in that sentence. Um, hey, you did it. Not <laughs> I did do uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> so he, but he starts telling Netley about um, a murderer, right? That he believes was commissioned by the Masons to commit this gruesome murder of a family, um, and it is, you know, like I said, it's a whole family. It's very gruesome. It's very violent. Um, but he says that this murder caused such an outrage that the people wanted a full-time police force. And there, the, the Masons, through a criminal act, through a violent ritual, have shifted society. And his quote is, was this the murder's motive all along? A ritual act to shape society. A pattern of control drawn with a finger dipped in infant's blood. So, that is him basically telling Netley and the audience that this is who he is. Yes. That this has already been done. Higher powers have already commissioned horribly violent acts uh, in order to shape society in some way. And honestly, I for some reason forgot to mention this earlier, this is Charles Manson. Yes. Um, in our own time, you know, that people say the 60s died with Sharon Tate. Um, and if you really want to get conspiracy-minded about it and... I wouldn't blame you. Um, some would say that the CIA had a hand in propping up and protecting Charles Manson so that he could commit the acts he did because they knew of the cultural significance. Um, there's a book called Chaos, by the way, that I highly recommend that where an author tries to make that case. That's not really a tangent. That's actually kind of relevant. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, the, someone could do these things and everyone will look, you know, the people in, whether that higher power is metaphysical and is God, or whether it's fucking J. Edgar Hoover. You know, sometimes it's just, sometimes to reflect on what he's been saying, that the gods are a magnification of the projections of humans. Sometimes the higher power is just a dude 
Sometimes the higher power is Vince McMahon pulling back his hood and saying it was me all along. You all bought it, hook, line, and sinker, even my immediate family. Again, I'm imagining George H.W. Bush pulling off the hood. <laughs> it was me, Austin. It was me the whole time. He's wearing a fucking Texas Rangers jersey. Uh, and so I believe that, you were at page thirty-four, yeah. um, which is which is really where take us home on this because this is him hammering it in. This this last like three pages really really hammer everything home. It's a really strong portion. Yeah, they wind up in the cathedral, and he says, like they stand in the middle of. Like the floor of the cathedral, at the center, there is a circle that sits in a uh, bigger circle, and on the outside of that circle are two overlapping stars, and on side, and that sits within a bigger circle. They're sit, they're standing in the dead center of this, and he says, "You see this stone? It's from Solomon's temple, built by Dionysiacs, the center of Masonic, uh, Masonic lore. For Solomon designed a seal." A magic symbol that could shackle power within itself, shaped like a star that, but that's but a distant sun. And Netley looks more sick, and he says, I can't tell where all this talk is leading. He says, can't you? Help me spread this map across the ground. I promise you shall understand a multitude of things. And now, it's the map of everywhere they've been on this, on this day. And... He has him draw a line from uh, t- to connect all these points, and it forms. As this forms, Netley realizes this is forming a giant star, and uh, and Netley says, "Oh God!" He says, "Ha ha! Yes, but not yours." And, and he looks insane. Yes, his eyes are like almost pointing in different directions. His face, his like mouth, is pursed in this like he he's like salivating. Yes, it's, uh, and he's trying to get Netley to keep going, and Netley freaks out. He gets up, he runs outside, he fucking throws up, and he says. Look upon the brasses hung upon the horse you ride each day. What do you see? You see a sun and moon, correct? And this next horse, tethered here. Inspect the brasses. See? A sun, a moon. And on the next coach, and on the next, and every coach in London, Netley, every single coach, you see your destinies inscribed upon the streets wherein you grew, upon the horse you ride each day. You cannot change your mind. Our stories written, Netley, inked in blood, long dry, engraved in stone. Yep, and that's how it ends with a big splash panel of the silhouette of London. Um, and just to tie this back into the story, um, the actual you know plot, because there's not a lot of plot in this chapter, but mm-hmm. to bring us back to the plot so that people listening can go and find out where it goes. As if you didn't know the story of Jack the Ripper. I mean, it's this big mystery nobody's ever talked about. <laughs> um, he's, he's bringing Netley around. This is on page 32. He says, the only populations that are constant hereabouts, untouched by passing centuries, 
are those perpetual multitudes of beggars, criminals, and whores. Ah, whores. Their lots diminished, like Diana's, whom they served as temple prostitutes, priestesses, uh, heros gamos, or joy maidens, which recalls daughters of joy, our current euphemism. One such, Mary Kelly, who's the object of our task, frequents yon tavern with accomplices whom you must name and then locate. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what all of these monologues and all of this drawing of the map that makes Netley throw up is all about. He goes through all of this explanation, all of this monologuing, all of these absolutely horrific implications because he's trying to find one prostitute so he can silence her in the name of the queen. Now, that's his story. That's what he tells the queen he's there to do. But really, he just told Netley what this grand work is all about. Not the common murder of a footpad, but something that is writ written into stone. I want to mention one thing before we get out of here. This book is dedicated to, to five women. Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Liz Stride, Kate Eddowes, and Marie Jeanette Kelly. You and your demise of these things alone, we are certain. This Jack the Ripper is a lot like, in terms of a cultural sense, it's the case around Jack the Ripper is a lot like the Black Dahlia killing. Well, we don't know a lot of the specifics, but we know that these people died. And we can posit all these reasons of what it could be. We can posit what brought these people, what happened. But at the end of the day, the only thing anyone knows is that these women were alive and then someone killed them. And this story and many others like it seek to try and put all the pieces together but at the end of the day they're only ever going to be able to, to guess and to tie it to the Black Dahlia killing the prevailing idea or a, a theory that I've heard is put forward and it applies I feel like to both of these in of all things LA Noir in which at the homicide desk you are tasked with trying to solve all these cases that seem very similar to the Dahlia killing and Cole Phelps asks do you think it's possible that it's the guy do you think he's out there and Rusty his partner at the time says no, I think he's probably in a cell somewhere. I think that, like, the implication there being that he has either been caught for the murder itself or for another unrelated crime. That someone who would do something like this could not escape scot-free forever unless, as Alan Moore puts it, someone protected him from it. And... 
that's kind of the thrust of this story is that one of two things would happen to someone like Jack the Ripper either he's a total fucking like either way he's a fucking maniac but he is either someone who would get caught someone who no one would notice if they went missing someone like Netley or there's someone like uh, like Dr. Gull who has the backing of someone powerful enough to protect him from the consequences of his actions and I think that more would probably sympathize with the idea that the specifics of who the man is that did it really aren't the most important part. Right. That ultimately it doesn't matter who did it. All that matters yeah. is that it was done. It is history acting through a person. Right. That it is the thrust of history acting through. Because I think that, you know, to go through, to tie this back to Dynasty Warriors. <laughs> Um, I, in all honesty, I was thinking about this, what I'm about to say, because I was just watching on Netflix. There's a documentary series about um, the Sengoku era in Japan and uh, Oda, Nobu Oda Nobunaga in particular. And I, th I was thinking about the great man theory of history that, it, you know, it's what we're taught in school that, like, there's a great man who did a thing and that changed things, right? It was through this one man and his decisions that the whole of history changed. And in this case, Jack the Ripper, he did this thing and everything changed. When it's really Jack the Ripper's not, Jack the Ripper's a vessel. Um, Jack the Ripper is history being funneled through a man. The man himself is not the history. The right. history is the history. The man is the vessel. Um, He's and a name to put to these things. These things, these these shifts, these breaks in the order, as I mentioned, like Charles Manson, like Daniel Plainview, like Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> um, but seriously, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a tale as old as time, and all throughout history, if you're talking about the Warring States era, it was Cao Cao. If it was Sengoku era Japan, it was Oda Nobunaga. If it was Victorian England, it was Jack the Ripper whoever he may be. That's a great bow to put on this. Jake, I'm going to say thank you for, one, being the first guest on this show and being the guest on the first anniversary of this show. I would like to thank so many people <laughs> uh, for being with us on this ride. Um, I want to thank everybody who's listened to this show. Everybody's listening to it right now. I want to thank all our friends that have been on this so far and all our friends that will be on it you know, in the future, Jake, you, uh, you know, Manny, uh, Will, Jesse, Alex, Chloe, uh, you know, everybody who's been on this fucking show. Um, thank you, because uh, this has been a lot of fun to do for the last year, and it's going to be more fun to do in the future. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter at MCMFPod. You can follow me at Archer Arios, A-R-X-H-E-R-A-R-I-O-S. The X is a C. Do not make me explain it. Uh, you can follow Jake on Twitter at Lake Dragging and at Drag the underscore Lake. Did I get that right? Yeah, the latter is my personal account. The former is the show's account. Um, you know, it, we can at this point, I think we can consider 
our shows a part of the expanded universe. Uh, yeah. There is much overlap in our guests. Right. It's all show. just like people we know. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have more so we can make it even stronger. We can share guests. Yes. <laughs> Simultaneous <laughs> podcast. I don't even know if I have any listeners. So if you're listening to this, come listen to me. <laughs> yes. Go listen to Jake's show. It's very, if you like his brand of very thoughtful, very, you know, intellectual commentary and uh, takes on things, listen to his show because it is that. Um, just through the form of heavy music. Uh, so it's everything you heard here, but it's about like fucking Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath is on my show a lot. Yes. <laughs> it's the unofficial Geezer Butler fucking rules show. That that should be the, the tagline. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a shirt that says Geezer Butler's number one fan and see it. everybody who knows what I'm talking about is my new friend. Uh but thank you all for joining us through this and uh, we'll see you next time.